Welcome to Artificially Intelligent Marketing, a weekly podcast where we stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, helping you get the best results from your marketing efforts. Now let's join our hosts, Paul Avery and Martin Broadhurst. Welcome to the Artificially Intelligent Marketing Podcast. I'm Martin Broadhurst, and today I am flying solo. That's right. My regular co-host Paul Avery is not joining us in this episode. Instead, he had to take a bit of a breather after many weeks of intensive AI announcements. He just couldn't hack it. And quite frankly, he had to just take a bit of a lie down in the Caribbean sun. So, Paul, I hope you are feeling refreshed and ready to go next week, because if this week is anything to go by the relentless deluge of ai news and announcements is not going away anytime soon in this week's episode we are going to be talking about four big stories first thing we're going to look at is italy banning chat gpt we'll also be looking at meta's announcement of the segment anything foundational model for computer vision We'll then be looking at the comments made by Sundar Pichai this week as he dismissed the AI chat bot threat posed by the likes of ChatGPT and Bing AI. And then we'll be looking at the AI index report measuring trends in artificial intelligence before wrapping up this week's episode with a fascinating long form interview. Let's kick off with the first story of this week then. Italy has banned ChatGPT. Last week's episode of the podcast was called ChatGPT Under Fire. Little did we know when we recorded that, that little more than 72 hours after we published the episode, a country would ban ChatGPT outright. So Italy's Data Protection Authority has criticised OpenAI for not checking user ages and said that there's been massive personal data collection during the training of the model. So OpenAI immediately blocked access to Italian users in response. Now this has obviously upset quite a few Italian users. Uh, It didn't take long to find people on Twitter saying what on earth is going on. So OpenAI has actually this week sat down and had talks with the Italian data protection authorities and they're presenting remedial measures that hope to mitigate and allay the concerns of the authorities. The company has sent over a document outlining measures to address these issues and I think they are hoping that they can get up and running very soon. Now, why does this matter? Well, Italy isn't the only country with concerns regarding ChatGPT. In fact, Germany this week has signaled that it may also look to block access to ChatGPT. Now, what I personally find slightly confusing about this story is 
as far as I can tell, ChatGPT is the only model that has been restricted and Bing AI has not seen any limitations put on it. And as far as I can tell, models such as Google's Bard, whilst I realize it's only a small audience at the moment, that has not had any restrictions either. So it seems like the authorities in the EU are really pushing to get the new technology providers in this space to basically increase transparency. A big concern is obviously around the way that they use people's data. They scrape the internet and all of the data that they're able to find goes into the, the training set. Yet nobody knows what that data contains. We do know that if you search for people's names and you search for companies, it's able to access and present relevant information about people. You don't need to be a high profile figure to come up in the outputs of ChatGPT. I've tried this with you know, relatively small businesses and the CEOs of, of SMEs that I'm aware of, and it can tell you who somebody is. So we know that is using this kind of data and the lack of transparency around the large language models training data, particularly GPT-4, which OpenAI has been very secretive with, uh, is a cause for concern for many. So I think this really is just the start of what we can expect to see from European privacy regulators. And no doubt before long, they will start to coordinate their actions across the EU. And we can expect to see uh, companies having to make significant adjustments in the way that they open their books, so to speak, and let you interrogate their models. Um, we can expect to see serious changes in this regard in the near future. What does this mean for marketers? Well, watch this space, really. The legislation and regulation around AI is nascent, as we discussed in great detail last week. I think we can expect to see the EU taking a leading role in this. Their policy papers at the moment suggest that companies using and developing AI models are going to have to be more transparent and more open with the training data and the weights and biases that they use within their models. All of which I think will be a good thing in the long term. But when you have a transformative technology like ChatGPT that really does capture the imagination of huge amounts of people all around the world, any restriction on that can just seem draconian. But I'm sure it's all done for the best, uh, in, with the best of intentions for the citizens of the EU. While we're talking about tech giants and their AI models that might come in for some scrutiny, we might as well talk about Meta. This week, Facebook's parent company Meta announced Segment Anything, a new foundational model for computer vision. So the Segment Anything model, also known as SAM, is a 1 billion mask data set. Now, the aim of this, as they say in their release paper, is to democratize image segmentation. Now, if you don't uh, know a great deal about computer vision, it's not an area that you're familiar with. It's basically the, uh, the technology or the machine learning models that allow computers to see and interpret what they are seeing. It plays a role in 
things like self-driving cars. They'll have cameras that will detect objects and classify the objects that they're looking at. Things like that is a car, that is a lamppost, that is a pedestrian. Or they can be used in, uh, recently saw a great example where AI computer vision was being used to identify bugs in an insect farm. And it was looking at the, the creatures on the insect farm and able to identify which of those were injured or maybe had illnesses. Uh, really interesting, innovative area. In more everyday usage, you might come across computer vision when you're unlocking your iPhone. The face unlock feature is using computer vision technology behind that. But the new segment anything foundational model from Meta is designed to enable developers to incorporate this new technology into their apps at scale. Uh, and it's what really sets it apart from existing data sets is just the sheer volume of the segmentation masks. You can think of a segmentation mask as being like on a coloring book page where you might just color in only the shape of the object that you're interested in. So if there's a, if there's a cat on that coloring page, you would color in the cat and leave everything else on the page white. And doing that, kind of feeding that into the computer will help the computer understand where the object is in the picture and then separate it out from the background. So the more examples of masks that you've given to the model, the better it is at identifying objects within a scene and being able to separate them out uh, from one another. In the example that they give in the research announcement, they actually say that it has 400 times segmentation masks compared to the next best model. So it's a huge increase in the data that it's got to work with. Now they give some examples of what you can actually do with all of this. Uh, they, in the section on the announcement page, they say what lies ahead and they've got some nice little illustrations where, for instance, you could be using AR glasses. So you're using augmented reality glasses and they could prompt the users with reminders and instructions based on what the person is looking at. And the example that they actually give is somebody working in a kitchen and in front of them in the kitchen is a chopping board with a cake on the side, which has not been iced. And in the top corner, the, on the, um, the augmented reality glasses, the user sees videos suggesting cake decorating tips because it recognizes that there is a an undecorated cake and kind of pulls out some relevant advice. Uh, there's another example where there is an empty dog bowl, a uh, food bowl on the floor and the glasses see this bowl and it's empty and it pops up with a notification saying that Rex was fed 20 minutes ago. So it's context aware. There are industrial applications for this, many of these that you could think of, but in the examples that they give, they talk about using it for agriculture to be able to assist uh, farmers kind of managing their herds, or you could use it if you're a biologist, and this is something I'd love to discuss in the future with Paul, if you were looking at uh, cell division or any kind of uh, life sciences application, that really, you know, you need uh, you need to be able to 
count cells rapidly. I'm, I don't, you know, I don't know why I'm talking about this as if I have any idea what I'm on about. This is so much in Paul's domain that I should just uh, just reference the fact that I'm looking at a GIF with some cells moving on it right now. And uh, apparently it's going to be really useful for that. We'll talk more about that in the future uh, with Paul when he's back in the studio. Suffice to say, this is a really interesting new technology that's going to open up huge areas of, of innovation and allow people to do so much more with their existing products. There's going to be applications in the security industry. You can well imagine how this is going to be integrated into things like CCTV, how it's going to help things like crowd control. Uh, TV and movie industry is obviously going to be able to make great use of this. Self-driving cars, which do need to be able to see objects, track objects and classify objects are about to get quite an upgrade as well. So the impact of this is not to be understated. And I think it's worth saying at this point that Meta deserve some credit because this model has actually been released with the Apache 2 license, which is a permissive open license. So this means that anyone can use the model and developers can build with it now. The Apache 2 license allows for free use, modification and distribution of the software. So that makes it accessible for a wide range of applications and research purposes. So hats off to Meta for that. In fact, the top comment that I saw when I read the tweet announcing this was from somebody saying, that's all great, but you should have led with the fact it's an Apache 2 license. Wow. Next up, I want to look at a recent interview that Sundar Pichai gave with the Wall Street Journal. The CEO of Alphabet has come out on a bit of a PR front after Google has faced significant pushback or criticism for its lack of innovation and basically it's, uh, well, to address the threat that it may or may not be facing from the likes of ChatGPT and Bing AI. I mentioned there it's faced some criticism and that people are saying that it is under threat, but that's not how Sundar Pichai sees it. If anything, he actually dismisses and minimizes the chatbot threat. He says that they see opportunity in the space. He says the opportunity is, if anything, bigger than before. Now he does say that, uh, Google will be enabling users to engage with large language models in a search context and that they are currently testing new search products, specifically ones that allow people to ask follow-up questions. So maybe we're going to see a more chat-like interface when it comes to Google search results. When asked why Google hadn't responded or released a chatbot earlier, why it was maybe resting on its laurels. He said that they were iterating and preparing to ship something and that maybe the timelines had changed uh, given the moment in the industry that we saw uh, back on November 30th last year when ChatGPT came to the fore. He does say that there has been incredible user excitement. He goes on to say that this is interesting for the company. He says, uh, it has been incredible to see user excitement around adoption of these technologies, and that is a pleasant surprise as well. Now, it remains to be seen exactly how Google does deploy AI in this space. It's a topic of conversation that we've uh, 
had in recent weeks talking about what does this mean for search engine optimization? That was a, an interesting discussion that I caught up with on Twitter this week as well, where Chris Penn from Trust Insights was saying that the era of unbranded search content is coming to an end. Branded search will be the primary driver of traffic. And in a few years time, when people are searching for things that they might ordinarily find on your blog, if you're doing long form content marketing kind of inbound marketing type activity, uh, soon those kind of answers will be found on the likes of ChatGPT and via chat AIs. So trying to optimize for that uh, will be pointless. Now, whether that comes to pass uh, remains to be seen. Uh, I should say uh, apologies to Chris if I've completely misrepresented that. I feel like I've uh, paraphrased slightly just to, to get that across quickly. But um, yeah, what going back to, to Google for just a second, Pitchai says that um, there are plans in place for Google Brain, the AI research lab, within Google and DeepMind, the Alphabet-owned research company uh, headed up by Demis Hassabis, there are plans for these two organizations to collaborate more closely. And this makes sense. Uh, Pitchai does say he expects a lot more stronger collaboration because some of these efforts will be more compute intensive. So it makes sense to do it at a certain scale. There has been a little bit of friction between DeepMind and Google in the past with uh, DeepMind not being uh, entirely aligned with the Google mission. There's said to be a bit of distrust and a fear of misuse of DeepMind's technology by Google and or the military. Some sources also mention that there's something of a cultural conflict between DeepMind's academic researchers and Google's business-oriented engineers. So much so, in fact, that uh, DeepMind tried to break away from Google and become a separate division under Alphabet, but negotiations on that have failed, apparently. So um, it will be interesting to see how they bring DeepMind and Google Brain together. Certainly feel that DeepMind have... You know, if I go back looking over the past 10 years or so, DeepMind have always been one of these companies that, quite frankly, are, are pushing the boundaries. They're, they're the ones that are doing great things in the life sciences space. They've done some amazing work um, with the likes of AlphaGo. You know, that was a great DeepMind project. Um, so when we start to see some of their capabilities incorporated into the Google product suite, that does make you think that there's some exciting times ahead for Google and you know maybe they maybe they should have been looking to make this move some time before now but there's nothing like a bit of healthy competition to spur things along our final story of the week comes from the Stanford Institute for Human Centered Artificial Intelligence which has released its 2023 AI index report the AI index collaborates with many different organizations to track progress in artificial intelligence. These organizations include the Center for Security, Emerging Technology at Georgetown University, LinkedIn, NetBase, Quid, Lightcast, and McKinsey. The 2023 report also features more self-collected data and original analysis than ever, they tell us. 
So this is a big look at the broadening uh, space that is AI and it's tracking everything from investment rates to risks to policy and regulation, you name it. So I just want to pull out some of the top takeaways from the report to keep you up to speed with where we're at globally when it comes to AI. So a few key highlights uh, taken from the report. Um, first of all, industry is racing ahead of academia. And this came as no surprise to me. And I think anyone that's been paying attention in this space for a few years now will have seen this. Uh, just all of the big announcements these days are coming out of Meta, NVIDIA, um, OpenAI, Microsoft, etc. So the report says until 2014, most significant machine learning models were released by academia. Since then, industry has taken over. In 2022, there were 32 significant industry produced machine learning models compared to just three produced by academia. It goes on to state that basically because of the huge amounts of data, the compute power, and quite frankly, the deep pockets that are required, it makes sense that industrial actors are going to need to really uh, take up the reins here and drive things forward. Also, when you consider the massive upside from uh, the profit motive, if you can realize the the benefits from AI, uh, it, it's not a great surprise to see that the incentive does exist for them to make these investments because down the road, the returns on investment look to be pretty chunky. In what is something of a theme at the moment in some of the reports that are coming out, particularly from academia regarding AI, uh, there is a suggestion that AI is uh, harming the environment. Though to be fair, this article does say that AI is both helping and harming the environment. So, you know, not all bad. New research suggests that AI systems can have serious environmental impacts, according to one report. Bloom's training run, which is a, so Bloom is a large language model. Bloom's training run emitted 25 times more carbon than a single air traveler on a one-way trip from New York to San Francisco. Which, if I'm honest, doesn't feel like a great deal to me. I actually think that sounds quite small, given the potential benefits of a big large language model like Bloom. So, yeah, that I can I understand why it needs to be highlighted, but it it could be worse. It does go on to say that new reinforcement learning models like Be Cooler show that AI systems can be used to optimize energy usage. So, uh, yeah, it's not all bad. When it comes to AI and industry and jobs, a topic that we discussed last week following OpenAI's report that showed 80% of jobs will be impacted by GPT technologies by at least 10%. Uh, the report says that the demand for AI-related professional skills is increasing across virtually every American industrial sector. So no great surprise there. And it goes on to say across every sector in the United States for which there is data, with the exception of agriculture, forestry, fisheries, and hunting, the number of AI-related job posts has increased on average from 1.7% to 
in 2021 to 1.9% in 2022. So employers in the United States are increasingly looking for workers with AI-related skills, unless, of course, you're in the world of hunting. And to be honest, I'd prefer that we just keep artificial intelligence out of hunting. That just sounds like a bad... I've seen Terminator. That just doesn't seem like a wise move at this stage. Or if we are going to do it, just keep it at GPT-3. The report also goes on to say that policymakers' interest in AI is on the rise. And this was a big topic of discussion on last week's show after the UK government announced their white paper looking at AI policy and regulation. So the report says that an AI index analysis of the legislative records of 127 countries shows that the number of bills containing artificial intelligence that were passed into law grew from just one in 2016 to 37 in 2022. An analysis of the parliamentary records on AI in 81 countries likewise shows that mentions of AI in global legislative proceedings have increased nearly 6.5 times since 2016. So this is no great surprise at all. And, you know, that was the lead story on today's pod. Italy banning chat GPT. And we're going to see more of this in the future, no doubt. As the EU brings its own AI legislation to Parliament and puts it on the books, and America does the same, and China is putting it through the uh, through the the law books as as we speak. Uh, we can just expect more and more of this uh, interest in regulating AI to uh, to come to the fore. So, watch this space. It will be interesting to uh, to see where we land on that one. And the. Uh, one final takeaway. There, there is more on this, by the way. So um, there's, if you want to read the full report, it's about 380 pages long, and I'm not going to pretend I've read all of it in the, in the few days since it came out. But uh, there are a few more highlights. But the, the last one I want to, to talk about is something about the sentiment that we feel towards artificial intelligence. How do, how do the general public feel about AI? Well, according to the report, Chinese citizens are among those who feel the most positively about AI products and services, whereas Americans, not so much. In a 2022 Ipsos survey, 78% of Chinese respondents, the highest proportion surveyed, agreed with the statement that products and surveys, uh, sorry, products and services using AI have more benefits than drawbacks. After Chinese respondents... Saudi Arabia, 76%, and India, 71%, felt the most positive about AI. So, you know, you're really 78% of Chinese, 76% Saudi, 71% India. That's a lot of positivity floating around there about what AI can do for people. Whereas Americans are a little bit more skeptical. Only 35% of those sampled agreed that products or services using AI had more benefits than drawbacks and what that means for adoption of new technologies or how companies need to think about rolling out ai infused products and services remains to be seen but it does suggest that there's a degree of skepticism around the power and potential of ai in the us and maybe the uh, wider western societies as well um, that means that we're gonna have to 
cautiously and not be so um, techno-optimistic. And I, I definitely fall into the side of being a techno-optimist. Just something to be aware of if you're uh, evangelizing the the benefits of AI, maybe you'll get a more positive response or a positive reception if you go and do that in China. Well, that's it for the main stories this week. No tool of the week this week, because uh, as you're going to hear in the interview that Paul conducted, you're going to hear quite a lot about the power of GPT-4. So without further ado, I'm going to hand off to Paul, who conducted this interview looking at how ChatGPT-4 can be used to boost the productivity of an e-commerce company. Over to you, Paul. So a bit of a special edition Artificially Intelligent Marketing podcast today, because we are lucky enough to be able to speak with a good friend of mine, Emil Lamprecht. Emil is CEO of Growth Mechanics. He is a co-founder of multiple businesses within that portfolio. He's a startup expert, having built um, a number of startup incubators over the years and mentored over 800 startups. He's a marketing expert himself, having previously been CMO at Athletic Greens, which is now a $100 million company, as well as a number of other marketing gigs and bits and pieces he's done over the years. And he's just an overall business expert and good guy. I guess the most important thing is he is a fellow AI nerd. So today um, we're going to talk about some cool stuff. Emil, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Lovely to be here, Paul. Uh, thanks for inviting me. And it's going to be very hard not to call you by your shorthand. I just realized I almost called you Avo right <laughs> off the bat there. So um, you yeah, do what you get. I'll have, I'll have to get used to calling you Paul on this conversation. <laughs> you call me whatever you like, as long as it's nice. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's probably going to be the hardest bit. That's though. the hardest bit. Yeah. yeah, for yeah. Sure. Um, we're going to talk about two main things for the mill today. The first one we're going to talk about is a ninja marketing application of AI that he's developed, which um, I think you're all going to find really interesting. So we're going to talk about that and hopefully it will inspire you as marketers to think about other ways you might use AI outside of the general, oh, I'm going to put some stuff into chat GPT, which of course many of us have, have played with. The other thing we're going to talk about is we're going to tap into Emil's role as a, as a business owner and a founder and just get his thoughts on how is the emergence of AI really going to drive how businesses need to operate and market themselves over the next 18 months, 24 months and beyond, because obviously things are moving really quickly. So, Emil, let's start with this Ninja application that you were telling me about, because it sounded really cool. Take us through what you were doing and, and why and, and how you benefited. Yeah, so, I mean, interestingly enough, or I think for me, what's most interesting about it is we did this before the chat GPT hype, obviously aspects of OpenAI and use of their APIs have been around for a while. And one of the cool things is that there have been some tools that implemented some form of availability to that early on. So like we use a tool uh, uh, for a lot of things called coda.io, which if you're familiar with Airtable or Notion is comparable to sort of both of those things or a combination of those things. Um, and part of our portfolio is, is e-commerce. And uh, in one case, a business we recently acquired is e-commerce with a very large portfolio. We're talking thousands of products across multiple languages, across four languages. So English, Spanish, uh, Portuguese, and French, which, okay, sure. We're, you know, a small agile team and it's a nice idea to, you know, grow that, to have 
hundred translators to constantly monitor and update every detail of product schema for every language all the time in the highest version of quality. But uh, there are limits to that being pragmatic or realistic. And so uh, last autumn, uh, sort of August, September, uh, we were looking at, okay, how could we, to a certain level of quality and efficiency, uh, leverage existing technology to try and manage and possibly even write or rewrite and republish product schema, whether that be titles, metadata, material information, warnings and, and recommendations, descriptions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we said, well, oh, okay, we, you know, we play with Coda and there's a, currently a, a little bit of availability built by one of the Coda team members of using uh, the OpenAI uh, API, which at that point was uh, uh, GPT 3.0, I think. I don't think it was at 3.5 at that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see what we can do. And, and, you know, the advantage of being able to build and manage a, a, a database and an easy to use UI like these tools now allow you to, um, we sort of figured out a way to import, uh, rewrite or translate as needed entire sets of product schema, concatenate it into, you know, end results, including recommendation links to associated product types and things like this, and then push that all the way back into the front end of the store um, and sort of dynamically manage our product portfolio and all of that product metadata um, uh, off-site, but to a certain extent automatically, which was uh, uh, quite a win. I mean, it, I, I calculated it at one point that by using this method of translation, we were probably losing, you know, maybe like a 20, 25% quality amount, but we were gaining what would normally take in human hours, about 1200 hours to execute wow. um, in, in any one go. And, you know, we're able, we still have to manage it in small batch. It's a lot of data, right? So you can't just do a portfolio of 10,000 products in one go. It takes a progressive amount of import, export, processing, et cetera. But you know, let's say we do a hundred products a week or a thousand products a week over the course of a year, we're saving thousands of, uh, human working hours from that. So, so let me just play that back to make sure I've understand, understood. You got this e-commerce website where you're selling 5,000 plus products across a bunch of different languages. And then what you've done is you've used access to GPT's API to find a way of effectively automating updates to the product descriptions and stuff across all those products in all those languages with GPT taking care effectively of the writing of those and the translation of those so that humans didn't have to. Is that a fair summary of what you did? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and there's actually, you know, of course, since the sort of hype of AI began in November, December, there's of course an increased availability of similar things on most e-commerce things natively now, right? So there's WordPress plugins, there's Shopify apps, there's big commerce apps, there's you know even PrestaShop modules that exist for this type of stuff within certain limitations. I think even that the fact that those exist is is you know a way to do some of the work either automated or you know push button generation. I think the difference between that and what we built was that we can manage entire sections of the portfolio also because we control the prompt structure. Mm. So I'm having 
you know, we're writing the prompt into the kind of database command that processes each product so that for each language, for each product type, it is producing a prompt specific in style and cadence and interest to that particular product in that context, which is not something you can really do with just sort of the plug and play apps that you find for any e-commerce uh, system at the moment. So um, I don't know if those apps will find a way to mature to that. To be honest, it seems unlikely because, you know, marketers always want the laziest version of things. So I'm not even sure it will occur to most marketers to, to try and be that specific with generated plugins on e-commerce. But um, uh, for us, it was really important to kind of have some stylistic control. And, uh, you know, even with the revolution of, you know, the thousands of AI tools that have appeared in the last two months, nothing comes close that I've seen so far to being able to produce the result we're doing with a very simple API call through a Coda doc. So um, how long yeah. did it take you? I, I realize there's an optimization part to this where you make sure oh, yeah. it works as you want, but how long did it take you to basically build that? <laughs> That's its own question. Like, is it a day? Is it a week? Was no. it, is it six months of work to build something like this? What does it look like? You know, I think to set up the initial version, just to prove the concept, I think it probably took, um, you know, between me and another team member playing around with it, it probably took us two days a day um, to get like, oh yeah, this could work to get to that point of, oh yeah, this could work. Right. Um, to get it really nailed down. It took, it took a number of iterations and those iterations are still happening. I mean, today we realized, for instance, just as an example, um, a Portuguese friend of mine was going over some longer form stuff that we had produced through the system and informed me in a very kind, polite way. Um, anytime it writes something in Portuguese over a certain length, it assumes a Brazilian style of Portuguese. Interesting. Which I, not being a native Portuguese speaker, is not something I picked up on when I was reading uh, various Portuguese texts coming out right. of the system. Right. So, you know, but because we built the system the way it is, I can go back to where we have isolated the language prompts. And instead of saying in Portuguese, I'm going to edit that to say in Portuguese, as you would find in Portugal, right. not in Brazil. And, you know, customize that prompt even further to that sort of specificity. So these sorts of micro iterations are, are happening all the time. Um, you know, we've managed since sort of starting to translate the product portfolio, we've managed to expand that to okay, we also have to translate quite a lot of product information into uh, social posts in different languages for different social accounts that we run. And so we're, we've now started building out those layers. And then we're also then extending those integrations and connecting that to schedulers and saying, okay, well, can you go through a generative and human review process that then pushes all the way straight through to the schedule and then you're done. And that's all based on this one sort of centralized system we've built. So again, very automated GPT is writing social posts, promoting the products. You want a human reviewing them for quality, but then once they're approved, they get pushed through and automatically built into the scheduled stream of posts that are going to go out across the social profiles for the business. Is that, is that what yeah, you're describing? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I, you know, particularly for the social stuff, you know, for the product stuff on the mass that we have, you know, we will mature to having a human layer on top of that generative one to, to sort of approve and review before it pushes all the way back through, because I just, right. it does make a huge difference. You know, it, it, you know, at first glance, text looks the same, but once you get used to seeing AI text, even once you get really good at stylistic prompts, 
you can still always tell it's AI. And so will search engines and everything else, right? So it's important to have that human layer. Um, for now, we just have that human layer on the social side, but you know, we've gotten very good at how the sort of generative human review publication cycle should work um, just in the past couple of weeks. And so, you know, what would take uh, normally would have taken someone probably a couple hours to write, you know, multilingual versions of social posts about a series of products takes a few minutes, then some editing and quick review, and then pushes straight all the way through. Awesome. It also comes to mind that because you've got control over the prompts, which some of these sort of third party plugins might not have, I guess you could end up doing some quite interesting stuff running things like A-B tests to see if having a certain type of style yeah. of, of description works better than another. But you can also run those A-B tests at quite quite an interesting scale across different product groups because you don't have to manually do all the writing of the different descriptions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're definitely not at the point to do that scientifically enough yet, but it's, it's, if you look at the admin doc of things to do, it's there. On the list. Um, it's definitely on the list. We'd love to get to the point where we could do that. Um, and, and part of that is a performance question, right? Like, if, mm. especially when you're processing this many requests, because we're, we're using, you know, we're not training a self-hosted version. We're using the API one call at a time, right? So we dump in a hundred products for each product that's making 28 separate requests and then collating those requests into a final series of outcomes, right? So it's a lot of, a lot happens for every product still, um, which takes a lot of time to process. And then, you know, the database has to actually load that visually so that we can interact with it for the human right. review or, and so forth. So like there's some performance questions in being able to really do this at scale um, uh, with, with all of those considerations in place. But, you know, I, again, even to just take your top hundred products of a portfolio of several thousand and manage to do this process, which we've now done, um, you know, that and beyond is, has proven invaluable. Amazing. So there you have it, marketers. What creative things can you think of to help scale your work outside of some of the sort of commercial tools that become available? Emil's told us a wonderful story there about figuring out how to massively scale product description changes across a wide array of e-commerce products in multiple languages and then using AI to also write social posts to promote them. Hopefully that uh, that will inspire people to go away and think, hmm, wonder how I could apply that type of approach to my own work. So Emil, I really appreciate yeah. you, you sharing that with me. No, of course. Also... I, I actually have one more point to add on to that, which comes, okay, cool. to, comes to mind now, which is just that like, at the status that this business is for us, we just wouldn't have done it. Right. Right. Like this isn't something that like budget wise, scale wise, operationally, we could have done humanly. It would have just waited until hopefully the business through other means had advanced and matured and gotten to the point where it could then invest in that transition or right. that process. So the most important thing about here is not that this is the best end result, right? Like I said, quality wise, it's probably 70 out of 180 out of 100, right? But if you're gonna kind of look at that from an Occam's razor's lens, if we can do that now and get 80% of the results, that value at this stage is so much higher than what we would eventually be able to invest in human wise if we ever got to that point with the business. Right. So like, especially for like smaller, low budget or low operating teams or, you know, smaller operating teams, it's about like 
maximizing efficiency, right? It's about how do you how do you look at it through the assistant lens and say, okay, if I could get an assistant to do anything, what would it be? And then yes, you have to design that. And there's a lot of system design and logic that went into that process. You do have to be good at that. But if you're good at it and creative enough, you could get some pretty excellent outcomes. Yeah. No, I'm, I appreciate you adding that extra detail and that concept of if I had an assistant, what would I ask them? I think is a, is a muscle that a lot of us are going to have to develop when we're looking at our business and marketing challenges. And maybe we can use that as a segue to, I know you're a, a deep thinker and you've been doing a lot of thinking and we've had a number of discussions recently about what the emergence of certainly generative AI tools, but a lot of other AI enabled tools is going to do in terms of having an impact on how people run their businesses and market their businesses. So what do you see happening? How do you think this is going to play out over the next months and years as, as these tools take hold? Well, first things first, we all know marketers will ruin everything because <laughs> no one's better at it than we are. Um, so that's number one. Right. Um, but I, the reason I start with that is because that's actually the lesson, right? So like right now, what we see happening in the AI market is people creating wonderfully intelligent or simple AI tools to more efficiently do or maximize current standards of marketing. Right. Which very quickly means that those standards will become more saturated and very, very much more quickly irrelevant. Right. <laughs> right. That is, that is not the lens we should be looking at. This is, it's not about how do we use AI to maximize the kind of performance or automated pieces of marketing that work now. It's about when this shift takes place in, it might be 18 months or two years or four years, doesn't really matter. What is then the marketing things that will survive or emerge on the other end of that? And that's, that's where I've, you know, as, as a portfolio, we have different companies that operate in different ways. And we're, you know, everyone's feeling a bit of the recession. Everyone's feeling the AI tech pressure on top of that, which makes it more amplified. Right. So everyone on our teams are going, whoa, 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 wait, wait, what do we have to do? <laughs> like, right. what's, uh, so I just start printing content like mad using ChatGPT. Is that, is, is that what I should be doing? Like writing 10 <laughs> articles a day instead of one good one? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. That's the, literally the types of questions that marketers and, and even non-marketers in our team are asking right now. And I think that's, probably what a lot of people are feeling some version of conscious or not right um in the space right now and so we've had to kind of look a little bit deeper and start to think okay what what works now that will probably work no matter what happens with ai that's question right. number one okay so what will probably not be affected fundamentally as a marketing style or tactic regardless right. of ai and then two once AI makes certain types of obvious marketing probably not work as well. Right, right, um, right. What, what will be the new tactics that might emerge from that? And that's a bit more sort of hedging and risk betting and like kind of trying to use your creative brain as a marketer to think through to the next systemic move. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the third one is regardless of number two, if people start to change their technical behavior, right? So if plugins on ChatGPT get really sticky, 
which means people move away from dedicated solution point and click interaction. They move away from direct, you know, two to five word search. And they actually do eventually start to adopt a more lingual form of interacting with multiple services. What will then the knock-on effects of that be on other channels or stable systems, stable quote unquote systems that we use, right? So we did a little bit of very rough math, right? Please, please no one quote me on these numbers, please. <laughs> but some very rough math on what happens if an average of around two or just over 2% of the English speaking market changes from uh, dedicated UI based interaction and using search engines to using a um, lingual platform, whether that be chat, be GPT and plugins or something like it. Right. 2% moves from the way everyone operates at the moment to exclusively that English so, market only. So even that you could consider as like, early adopters that's right not a huge amount percentage wise right yeah. yeah but it's like you know a couple hundred million people move their everyday behavior over there what happens well one of the things that happens is ads almost double in price for almost every single niche <laughs> right right because that is the two percent that is digitally active enough that they are sought out by most advertising categories. And so if you just remove 2% of that population, that entire sort of stable platform of that of ad performance and how that's calculated and generated starts to buckle. And so you suddenly get, you know, we're already seeing crazy price increases in most ad platforms the past two years. This isn't necessarily new. It's just it's potential to be accelerated massively by a very small transitional adoption of the population to this new type of behavior could have massive implications. Now, if Google ads doubles in price, particularly for e-commerce, half of e-commerce collapses. Because mm, you can't the make primary... any margin on it anymore. No, yeah. it's the primary channel. Like ROAS on Google ads and Google shopping ads is like the primary channel for the majority of mid to at scale uh, e-commerce platforms. So they either have to kind of get way ahead of that and start changing how those tactics work now so that in two, three years, they're, you know, it's a much less reliant channel or they're going to wait too long and it's going to start to collapse and they're going to struggle and a lot of them are going to die. What does that do to the sort of economic stability of business and having a startup and all of that? These are sort of the existential crises that we're <laughs> considering in this equation, right? But it's, it's those sort of three core points that we've been looking at. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the first one is definitely the immediate reaction I see in a lot of places because it's practical and applicable quickly, right? You can log into ChatGPT or some other tool. You can start to have a play with it. You can get it generating content for you very quickly. And all of a sudden you feel like, I should be doing this no matter what, because surely it's better and more efficient. And I, right. we've talked on the podcast previously, and I know you and I have spoken about what happens when you get a deluge of AI generated content that may not be that well curated or edited. And it just is junk. And, you know, hopefully the cream rises to the top and most of that is at best AI enabled. I don't yeah. think it will be AI generated. So I think there's, there's some stuff in that in terms of looking at the wider ramifications, like you just described, 
I don't, I don't think most marketers are even thinking about number one, if I'm honest. I think some are, and I, I think that proportion's growing. The, the number of people who are thinking about number two is very low. And the number of people who are looking like number three is probably just you, Emil. It's probably you. just <laughs> me. Yeah, it's probably just me having an existential crisis about something happening in four years. That's That yeah. sounds about on on point <laughs> right but, but but i think you know when you're trying to predict the future and manage your business and your marketing strategy you have to keep these these things in mind so i think that is hopefully going to give our listeners real food for thought you know where are you listeners on your journey from one to two to three there um maybe we can summarize those in a word emil right like number one is using tools to produce content now yeah number two is how do things change as people start to use these tools and how people actually search for information changes? And then three is what happens to the rest of the business ecosystems as a knock-on from that factor in terms of how to add existing ad platforms naturally adapt to changes in user behavior, the emergence of new ad pl platforms, et cetera. So is that yeah. a, a fair summary? Yeah, I, I think the, the, the tweak and review of one and two and um at this point i've been waffling so much i've probably lost my own threads there a couple times but you know the 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 one thing that's important most important to recall is just like the tools that are being pushed upon us to use now are those that amplify current strategies but that doesn't insulate you against once everyone is using those strategies and they're saturated no longer relevant right so that's that's kind of where point two is leading yeah um and that then leads to the inevitable existential crises of point three. But like, it's, it's really more about like, if you're going to be a good marketer, you have to stop being a lazy marketer and you have to think, okay, if everyone does this, what am I going to do? Mm, right. That's a great and what, question. what are, what are the things that are still going to work regardless of this? Um, yeah. And so I, I think an inevitable question from someone listening to this, I hope would be, well, what are those things? <laughs> you know, and I, I, we could go probably on a separate rant about what some of those things may be. I can leave a little like nugget hanging here, which is that if it's human, it's probably going to stay, right? right? There's a level right. to that that is real, right? And you have to think of human on many levels. Partnerships are human. Agreed. communities that exist within current constructs of a lot of self-identity and alignment are human. So access to those with our partnership are human. Hint, hint, hint. Um, which we already knew from the past couple of years, right? We see performance based marketing kind of collapsing. We're returning to sort of more of a brand human driven thing anyway. Yeah. And now AI is just pushing that all. Going to accelerate that. I love that. I think um, we're about on time now, Emil. So let's leave that dangling in people's minds. I want to come back. And maybe we'll do this again in a month or so's time and really dig into some of those other number three scenarios because I think they're really interesting. But I think for now, hopefully everyone, that's given you something to, to chew on. Emil, thank you so much for your time today. I always love hanging out with you. Good to speak with you. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll do this again soon. Yeah, no, it's been a, a pleasure as always. I love doing this. So thanks for uh, hearing out my uh, existential ramblings and um, thanks to your audience uh, and, and to your audience as well, like chase us down with questions, especially in the potential that we might do a follow-up conversation. I'd, I'd love to hear what listeners are actually thinking about or feeling when they, when they start considering this for themselves.
Great stuff. Yeah, completely agree. I'm sure you'll find this on the socials, on the LinkedIn's and the Twitter's when we put it out there. So we'd love to hear your, your questions on those channels. Thanks, Emil. Yeah. Um, I'll speak okay. to you soon. All right, we'll do. Thanks, Paul. Take care. Thank you for listening to Artificially Intelligent Marketing. To stay on top of the latest trends, tips, and tools in the world of marketing AI, be sure to subscribe. We look forward to seeing you again next week.